This year we've been in a series, and it's based uh, from Psalms chapter number 1 in Psalms 92, and it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, that is God's law, he meditates day and night, and he'd be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And we've used this to springboard from that to our theme for this year, living the extraordinarily blessed life. And we pointed out that just like this verse points out, there's a difference in being planted by the river and raised out there in the desert somewhere where you're struggling to survive and you need a rain every now and then, and actually a little more than every now and then, hopefully. But the tree that's planted by the river of water is not affected by droughts or an absence of rain, is it? Because it's got its roots in the source of life. And the qualifications for living the extraordinarily blessed life that Psalms also identifies where it says you can't walk in the counsel of the ungodly nor stand in the path of sinners and not sit in the seat of the scornful. You have to change the way you think in life so that you don't live by the principles of the ungodly element in this world. And you've got to, you can't stand in their path. You can't take their journey. You can't say, well, that works for them. Let me try it. And nor can you become cynical, which is what it means, a seat of the scornful. Notice seat. The other, it says, stand in the path of the sinners. That signifies activity. Sitting signifies immobility. So you're sitting and not going anywhere in your life. And the, what it's referring to is somebody who's grumbling and complaining and becomes cynical and doesn't do anything and doesn't go anywhere. And the difference is that you delight in the law of God. You change the way you think and you meditate in God's law day and night because it reprograms your thinking. That's when you become like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And Psalms 92 goes on to say that those who are planted in the house of the Lord will flourish in the courts of our God. They shall bear fruit in old age and be fresh and flourishing. And the key word here is planted too. Because once again, it signifies that you're permanently involved in a place where you can receive life. You don't flit from place to place like a butterfly. Move from here to there. Try one thing for a while and something else the next. But you're moving forward in an aggressively fashioned and strategic way to embrace your destiny. And I want to read one other verse, Psalms 127. It's a verse we all know. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. Say this with me, Christ in me, the hope of glory. One more time, Christ in me, the hope of glory. I told you that this series, I think, will be more helpful than any other. This is the third session in this part of the series. Andrew preached recently, I think, on, on being set free from fear because it's one of the things that, that ties people up and causes them to become self-destructive. Fear immobilizes them. That's actually what that seed of the scornful thing is, is referring to, at least in some measure, because some people become immobilized with fear. They don't do anything, and so they abort their own destiny and their way of dealing with the progression of others and the advancement and elevation of others is to find fault in it. Yeah, but, you know, that kind of a deal. And they become scornful or become, as it were, cynical. Now, 
From these, we're talking about living the extraordinarily blessed life. But I've taught many smaller series during the course of this year. And this one that I'm in right now is set free from me. Would you bow your head and pray? Father, I thank you for your word that is incredible and life-giving. And please open your word to our understanding, but even perhaps even more importantly is that you would open our hearts and help us to do so. Because if you open your word and our hearts are closed, we're in trouble. And we need you, Lord, because we want to be that person that is blessed and planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in season and whose leaf never withers and whatever we do prospers. So we ask for your anointing today, not only to speak, I ask for that humbly as the pastor, the, the, the one who's going to speak, but Lord, I ask it also equally with desire and fervency that you would anoint our hearts to hear. I ask it in Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. God created this world to give him praise and to bring him glory. I don't think there's anyone in this building that would dispute that. Everything you see, God created that he could be glorified. He has great plans for this world, and he hasn't given up on creation, nor has he given up on mankind. Some of us might have, but God has not. Some of us might be cynical for any number of reasons, and because your side lost in the election and somebody else has won, or your side, whatever, it doesn't make any difference. I've never preached politics here and never will. As the old saying goes, if politics is not your business, don't bring politics into your business. And that's really good advice in the times in which we live because things like that fragment and divide people by getting our attention on one another rather than on him. And my calling as a pastor is to focus your attention on God because he can do so much more. You say, well, you've got systems that are opposed to what, what I believe in. Yeah, that's right. But who can change them? God can. Amen. I believe in the power of prayer, and I believe in the power of God, and God can send a revival that can make Nineveh and its king go to fasting and praying while he's still on his throne. God can bring revival to a nation. And so I want you to know that even though sometimes we give up on one another and mankind gives up on himself, that God's not given up on our world and he still has plans, great plans for our world. He knows that someday this fallen world will be restored to righteousness. You say, how's that going to happen? And how, why are you so sure? Well, it's like everybody already knows. If you're in the middle of a book that's a page turner and your heart is in your, your throat and your chest is pounding and you can't wait to see what's going to happen next, you know what you do? You flip to the end of the book and read how the story ends. And you go back and you can read the rest of it at a more measured pace. You know, you don't have a heart attack every time the hero or heroine gets into a difficult situation. In similar fashion, Bible believers have read the end of the book. We know the Lord is going to place, send an angel that will place one foot on the land and another on the sea and declare that time shall be no more. And that this world and its kingdoms have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and forever. That's where... That, that's where Handel got his Messiah course from that very verse. Amen. And then we're approaching Christmas, so you're going to hear that during the Christmas season. 
The process of mankind rediscovering who he was meant to be is either aided by our hunger and ability to let go of old paradigms and receive revelatory truth, or it is hindered and impeded by our lack of hunger and our reluctance to embrace new kingdom understanding. I want you to think about that because that's a mouthful. You either slow down or speed up the process of God's transforming your life and elevating your life to the extraordinarily blessed life by how hungry you are and your ability to let go of old paradigms taught you in the world and receive new truth. You either speed it up that way or you slow it down by your reluctance to let things go that you were taught. Without new information, science tells us conclusively that it is a foregone conclusion that most of us will not see any reason to change the way we think. The way this works out is therefore it is almost guaranteed that your lives will not change unless you change the way you think. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. The problem is that most of us embrace truth that could change our lives much more slowly than we think we do. Most of us think we're much more passionate for God and for his word than we actually are. And God has to be very patient with us. I don't say that to confront any of us here or to shame you or make you feel bad. I'm just telling you a fact, a condition of human life. This is why you can read something in the Bible and read it a thousand times and not pick up on what it's saying until you walk through a situation and all of a sudden you say, aha, yeah, I see that now. And the truth comes to life. It was there all the time, but you just couldn't receive it at that point. And God has to break the news to us slowly, as it were, the good news slowly. And it's not just the good news that gets you converted and the good news stops. It's the good news that continues after you're saved to tell you who you were really designed by God to be. Joke, okay? Because I want to talk to you about receiving the news slowly. A bachelor who lived at home with his mother and his pet cat went on a trip to Europe. And he really loved his mom and he loved his pet cat. And before he left, he told his best friend to inform him of any emergencies that came up while he was gone. And so a few days after his departure, he hadn't been in Europe but just a day or two, his cat climbed up on the roof and fell off and was killed. The cat he loved so much. His friend immediately wired him with a message, your cat is dead. I mean, the man scrambled, managed to get a flight, and a matter of only a few hours, he was back home, having cut short his trip out of grief and also anger at his friend, whom he proceeded to tell, why didn't you break the news to me gradually? You know how close I was to my cat. You could have sent a message. You could have said one day, your cat climbed up on the roof today. And the next day, you could have written, your cat fell off the roof. And then the next day, your cat is not doing very well. And the next day, you could have said, I'm afraid your cat has passed away. And you could have let me know slowly that he had died. Your bluntness showed a real lack of consideration and compassion for what I am going through in my loss. After a quick memorial service, the bachelor left again to continue his trip to Europe that he had so looked forward to. And after a few days, he had just got back to his hotel one evening. There was another message waiting for him from his friend. He read, your mother climbed up on the roof today. (laughs) 
break the news slowly. And God deals with that every time he tries to talk to us. He has to break the news slowly. In the verse I read in Colossians 1.27, the Apostle Paul tells us that God's hope for mankind and the world is anchored in believers who have been empowered by the Christ who lives within us. Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I would venture to say that most believers think they understand what that verse is stating, but I would also conclude that most don't. It is my opinion that most believers misinterpret this from Colossians, and rather than realizing that the verse is about God's hope for this world, they actually believe it's about the believer's hope for going to heaven. Stay with me and don't, don't just shut me down just yet because I'll, I will explain. It's actually quite easy to misinterpret this verse right here because it is unique and that even though you might misunderstand what this scripture is saying and misinterpret it as I think many do, the misinterpretation of this verse actually expresses a truth that is equally as profound as does that of the correct understanding of this passage. Most verses are not like that. If you, it says it's a certain way and you misinterpret it another way, that means you're wrong. And that's a contradiction. This verse, however, you can misunderstand, and the misunderstanding is still another truth that is supported elsewhere in the Bible. And so every time I hear this verse, it has always been used in this sense. Christ in us is our hope of glory. That's not what I believe it means, but nevertheless, Christ in us is our hope of glory. That is to say, I'm not going to glory without him. Hello, somebody. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Amen. If it had not been for God who came, none of us would be saved. If Christ had not reached out to us, if he had not paid the supreme price on the cross of Calvary, none of us would be here right now in church as believers. None of us would. Nothing but the blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Programs won't. Information won't. Church memberships won't. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's why I call our people to remember that our calling is the highest in the world as believers. We're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Amen. And we're taught to reach the world with this message. That's why we're called. But if you misunderstand this verse and you think it's saying Christ in you is your hope of glory, well, you're absolutely correct because you're not going to glory without him. That's just not what this verse is saying. It says it in other places. However, to interpret this scripture in that manner actually causes us to miss its more significant and intended meaning. Sometimes to advance your relationship with God and to become who he meant for you to be, you must be willing to unlearn. Everybody say unlearn. You have to unlearn some things you think you already know to learn what you need to know. Jesus actually spent a lot of his time challenging people to unlearn some things. You would hear him make statements like this. You have heard, but I say unto you. He did that over and over. He would first confront what they thought they knew. 
And then he would teach his hearers the way things really were. Sermon on the Mount is filled with those kind of challenges. Listen to this, Matthew 5, 21. You have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Verse 22. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. That's what Jesus had to say. He often confronted people to tell them, you think you know some things that you don't really need, no, that you don't really know that you need to unlearn. Again, Matthew 5, 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not bear, swear falsely. Verse 34. But I say to you, do not swear at all. Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Verse 39. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, and whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other. Matthew 5, 43, you have heard that it was said, love your enemy, uh, your neighbor, hate your enemies. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Again and again, and those are only a few of the many places where Jesus would do this. He was asking people to unlearn what they thought they knew, to learn a superior revelation of truth. To get the most out of this verse in Colossians 1 and 27, that's actually what we've got to do. Now, let me explain. Notice that this verse does not say that Christ in us is our hope of glory or going to heaven. That's what we mistakenly infer from this verse. This verse actually expresses exactly what Paul intended to communicate that Christ in us is glory's hope. Amen. The reason that heaven has hope for this world is that God has vested within us the mighty Christ, and Christ within you changes everything. Amen. Somebody ought to say praise the Lord right now. Let me explain. Let's use this with other things that, that we would talk about and see if we really believe that it says that Christ in us is our hope of going to glory. If I were to say LeBron James playing for the Cavaliers is the hope of Cleveland. Now notice, instead of Christ in you, the hope of heaven or glory, let's say that LeBron James being in the Cleveland, uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers is is their hope of winning the championship. We understand that. LeBron James is giving the Cavaliers hope of, of winning a championship, not the hope of going to Cleveland. They're already in Cleveland, honey. So why do we twist that up and make it say something here that it's not saying? Having LeBron James on the team gave Cleveland greater hope that the Cavaliers would succeed. And similarly, what God is saying through Paul is that Christ in us is empowering us. And heaven has hope that we will succeed in our task, which is to bring the kingdom of God to the earth. Amen. Why would this verse say that this is our hope of going to heaven? Going to heaven is already assured. If you're a child of God, you got that one nailed down, honey. Amen. On Christ the solid rock I stand. I want to say it again. Christ is not a rock that's shaken. Hear what I'm talking about. We have hope that has entered beyond the veil. Amen. 
There are actually four reasons why we might initially misunderstand what this verse is actually declaring to us. First, many believers have not yet come to understand what the sovereignty of God means. It seems strange for us to say that an all-powerful God would hope for anything. So we immediately look for another meaning to this verse. We reason that surely if he wanted something to happen, he's God. It would just happen. That's what God does. After all, he's the omnipotent God of glory. That logic, however, is exactly why some have become atheists. It's why you have others that are skeptics and agnostics and why some become embittered toward God. They lose a child to cancer or a country gets devastated by famine and somebody says, well, God's all powerful. If he had wanted to change that, he would have changed it, right? And so they get mad at God and they don't understand the sovereignty of God. In God's sovereignty, he created the world to be perfect. I need somebody to say amen. But in his sovereignty, he delegated man to be his representative in the earth and to control the affairs of the earth and gave man authority. Amen. God gave man the freedom to sign the contract or not sign it. Let me relate it to a business that you own and the business is doing well and expanding and you have to at some point, if the business is going to grow, you're going to have to empower somebody to make some decisions. And they can make decisions that are good or they can make decisions that are bad that help you or hurt you. And God gave man the power to make certain decisions. Does that mean if you own a company and you give somebody authority, you're not the CEO or the president or the founding uh, 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 owner of that business or the grand Pumbaa or whoever you make? No, you're still all of that. It's just you now delegated some of your authority based on your sovereignty to that person in whom you have vested a certain amount of trust. And similarly, the Bible said the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof but the earth he has given to the sons of men Adam and Eve made the wrong decision hear what I'm talking about and it opened the door they signed a contract with the wicked one that brought cancer and disease into our world don't blame God it was his agent that messed up and Jesus came to correct all of that oh somebody say hallelujah so when it says that Christ in us is God's hope of, our, our heaven's hope, our hope of glory, amen, what you need to understand is what it really is meaning is that God still has given us the power to do what we want to do. You can, right down to the ultimate decision, which is to be saved or lost, even though the scripture says he is not willing that any should perish but all that should come to repentance. Ultimately, he will never force you to serve him. Because to God, that's another form of slavery. And if you haven't found this out about God, the one thing God's against is slavery of any kind. He don't want you bound by anything. He wants you free to serve him because worship from a heart that has been given to him voluntarily is of an infinitely greater value than worship that comes from somebody programmed against their will to do the very same thing. Amen. Someone might ask, well, why would God give us the right to choose if we could make the wrong decision? 
for exactly the reasons I just stated, because he doesn't want you to even be his slave. He wants you to choose to serve him. The second reason that we misunderstand this verse is because we fail to realize many times in reading the Bible when God is speaking anthropomorphically to us that he might relate truth to mankind. You see, God has this problem. His ways are higher above ours than the heavens are above the earth. His thoughts above our thoughts. And to be able to communicate with us, God has the same situation that you've got going on with your newborn infant. I'm not talking down to anybody. I know you think you're all of that with your degrees and everything else, and I congratulate you and appreciate everything you've done. I love you. I'm for you. But I want you to know on your best day, God is so intelligent. He's got, forgive me for the term, he's got to dumb down what he says to a level that we can receive it. It's kind of like you, like I said, with your baby. Goo goo da da, say hello to dada. Amen. Come on, this is mommy. Come on, mama. And you're you're talking baby talk. That's what God does in the Bible. He speaks to us at a level that we can understand, or otherwise truth would fly right by us. Amen. Somebody in the building say hallelujah. You, you, you see this throughout the Bible. You see where God, the Bible said, repented in Noah's day for making man. What? What? God repented, changed his mind. You mean an all-knowing, omniscient God that knows everything? He changed his mind and regretted making man? Or how about this? The Lord remembered Noah, which infers that God might have forgotten him. Amen. You mean that a God that knows everything might forget? No, 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 no. Don't twist it up and make it crooked here. Don't get it all twisted. God is trying to relate to us. How else can he communicate his divinity to creatures that are not divine? Amen. His immortality to those of us who are mere mortals. In Psalms, he says he will remember their sins no more. Wait a minute. He can't be God and forget anything. What it means is he puts our sins somewhere in his mind where he doesn't let it stand before him in his relationship with us. And he hides them under the blood. Thank God for the blood of Jesus. Such were some of you, Paul wrote in, 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 in the Bible, in the New Testament, in Corinthians. Such were some of you. And now, look at you. You're washed. You're, you're saved. You're sanctified. I want you to know you never have to worry about God dredging up your past because he won't do it. It's hidden under the blood of Jesus. People may drag it up, but God will never drag your mistakes up. Somebody give him some praise right now. So that word anthropomorphic, it means to, to, to be like a human. God speaks to us like a human would, even though he's God. And so that's what we fail to realize in Colossians 1 and 27, when it says that Christ in us is the hope of glory. We say, how can God ever hope for anything? And we fail to realize that he's speaking to us anthropomorphically to tell us that's how much confidence he has put in us. The third reason we understand, misunderstand rather, this verse is that we sometimes are not aware that the word glory actually refers to a number of completely different things in the scripture. It isn't always talking about heaven, though we oftentimes think it is. This train is bound for glory, this train. 
Amen. Y'all know the old song. Amen. This train is bound for glory, this train. You've all heard it. And every one of us, at the moment we hear it, we know that's talking about heaven, right? But that's not all glory refers to in Scripture. It also refers to the divine nature of God. Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. He wasn't asking to be shown streets of gold or walls of jasper. He said, I want to see you, God. God created a cleft in the rock and put Moses there, put his hand over Moses and passed by and allowed Moses to see the hinder part because you can't look at God face to face and survive the encounter. Amen. But it not only refers to heaven and to the divine personage of God or nature of God, it also means the glory of kingdoms. Luke 12, 27, consider the lilies, Jesus said, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Amen. Talking about the glory of Solomon's kingdom. When Jesus tells us, Matthew 25, 31, that the Son of Man will come in his glory and all his angels will be with him, he is referring to when he appears. He's going to come his full divine nature revealed. Everybody's going to see it. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then we're going to see face to face. Amen. We shall behold him. Hallelujah. Oh, beloved, we're going to be like him for we shall see him as he is without a filter to accommodate our human weakness or the frame of our mortality. No, no, we get to see his divine nature, but that's not all it means because his angels are coming with him. And so he's not only going to come with his full and complete divine nature on display, he's coming in the glory of a kingdom that far superior to Solomon's, amen, and any other kingdom that has ever existed in this world. The fourth reason that we misinterpret this verse is because simply we know our own fallen human nature. And we know who we have been all of our lives. We know the mistakes we have made. We know our proclivities and tendencies. We know our weaknesses. Nobody else may see it, but you do. And God, and you look at yourself in the mirror, and it's hard to say that Christ in me means that we're the hope of glory. Christ in us is the hope of glory. That glory is actually depending on me. Doesn't he realize how flawed I am? Doesn't he know how weak I am? Doesn't he know the mistakes I make? And what I'm trying to tell you is there is a God living inside of you that can overcome all of the frailty and weakness of, of your human experience. Oh, somebody in the building say hallelujah. So I contend this verse is not even about going to heaven. It says that in other places. Don't worry. That's well supported elsewhere. But this verse actually speaks of the strategic purposes of the kingdom of God and the mystery of his divine plan for the ages, the hopes of the kingdom or of glory or in us. This verse reveals that something inside of us is so powerful that we haven't even discovered yet. Oh, I need to say an amen to what I just said myself. It further reveals the mystery of how God, by having first saved and empowered us, can make us capable of doing extraordinary things in him. Amen. 
Why is this verse so important? Why? And how does it relate to free me from me, set free from me? Why should every believer understand that God has actually placed the future hope of redeeming the world in us? I'll tell you why. Why it's so important. It's important because of what it suggests. It implies something the devil hopes you will never come to know. It implies a truth that the devil lives in terror of you ever finding out. And that is how extraordinarily powerful you actually are with Jesus living inside of you. Mm. God has placed his hope in us. He doesn't have a plan B, doesn't have a backup plan, doesn't have another option. All of his hope resides in people of God that have Jesus living on the inside. He's not looking for anything else, not going to send angels. He he knows that what he has chosen as his option is going to work. And that is why he can step into the future and and, and positively affirm that the day is coming when his kingdom will rule in the earth. Amen. In the book of Revelation. Amen. This is also why Paul can declare in Philippians 4.13, I can do, say it with me, all things through Christ who strengthens me. Some of us believe it was because Paul was smarter. Some of us believe Paul was more gifted. Listen, Paul wasn't saying that because I am so strong and gifted gifted, and I am the great apostle Paul. (laughs) You peons out there, don't you wish you knew what I knew? He's not saying that. And that by Christ coming to reside in me, that little bit of help I get from God is going to make me able to do all things. That's not the perspective that Paul is speaking from. What Paul is actually saying is I'm just ordinary like everybody else but I've got an extraordinary God living on the inside of me and that makes me capable of doing extraordinary things somebody in the building say amen heaven has directed all of its resources all of its resources toward helping the church to come to this point of revelation listen to the verse before this verse the mystery Paul says, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Notice in verse 27, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is in you, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Watch how Paul breaks this down for us. In verse 27, this mystery. To whom is he referring when he says, to them God willed to make known? Go back to the verse above it. It ends by saying, it has now been revealed to his saints. So who is God wanting to reveal this to? Us, the children of God. And notice what else Paul says. Next phrase, God willed to make known. It is God's will that we come to understand this most important of revelations. And then, no, what is it that the revelation consists of that we should know? That Christ in us is the hope of glory. This is an amazing verse. God himself has so much confidence in you and me that he has placed the future of his kingdom in our hands. Look at somebody and say, you have no idea how powerful you really are. Do 
you realize what this says about who you are in Christ? I don't think you heard me. Do you realize who, what this says you actually are and who you are in Christ? Did you hear about the 16-year-old young man in Georgia here about six weeks or two months ago who was playing soccer and got kicked in the head in the soccer match and went into a coma for three days? Anytime you play soccer, you're going to have some Hispanics show up because they love soccer. And some of the young men that he played with spoke Spanish. And he picked up a few words of Spanish along the way. But when he woke up from a coma, guess what? He spoke fluent Spanish. He thought he had just picked up a few words. As it turned out, everything he was hearing was going into the computer and it took an accidental kick to just the right part of the brain for the connection to be made to cause that information to, to surface. You don't know what lies inside of you. Amen. You have no idea there was the man in outside Seattle that got mugged and woke up seeing everything in fractals, which are uh, a complex mathematical kind of design. There was the man in New York that got hit by a baseball. And when he came to, all of a sudden he could solve complex mathematical equations to umpteen number of, of digits, like square roots to, to 20 and 30 digits, just that fast. He couldn't even do that in school with a calculator. All of that was stored there. There was the lady that got in an automobile accident and came out of a coma speaking fluent French. She had heard it spoken before, but she never realized that her brain was a, a thirsty computer tape recording everything that was being said. Amen. Others have had accidents and come out of the accident with an extraordinary ability to play a musical instrument, walk over to a piano and never having touched one and sit down and start playing right away just on the basis of the notes that they now somehow knew belonged right here and right here. And how do you do that? What I'm trying to tell you is when man fail, we have no idea how badly he messed us up. Satan caused us to lose out. Oh, I need somebody in the building to shout hallelujah. And when Jesus came, he came to restore everything the enemy stole from you. But the problem is you don't know what you don't know that you don't know. And the message of the gospel is Christ in you is the hope of glory. God sees who you really are meant to be. If that's the case, and we've got all of this locked inside of us, every algebra lesson, every trigonometry lesson you've ever learned, every high school French lesson, it's all there. They actually say you never really forget anything. It's just buried somewhere. If all of this is there, amen. What could you actually become if that could be tapped into? And why is it then, if we were made to be so powerful, that we keep destroying our own prospects? We keep circumventing the process and hurting ourselves. Hello. We keep making decisions that unravel our own success. 
That's what the Bible says we do. Paul describes it in Romans. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, I, that I do not practice. And he goes on to say, for the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. So why is it that when I want to do this, I end up doing that instead? And why is it when I try to avoid this, that I end up going doing the very thing that I don't want to do? Amen. Something within us is working toward our downfall. And you have three enemies, the world, the devil, and then yourself. And your programming, what has been pumped into you your whole life, is what both the world and the devil use to constantly seek to destroy you. Change the programming, and the devil can't have any place in you anymore. Amen. Change it. And that's the message of the Bible. Jesus said, John 8, 31 through 32, to those Jews who believed, if, biggest word in the Bible, two letters, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. What is God saying? That when you get saved, that's not the end of the process, it's the beginning and back to this whole thing now. Let's go full circle to where I started from. How quickly do you receive truth? Or do you get hung up, well, that's not the way we always did it here. That's not what grandma taught me. Wasn't the way I was raised. And once again, science says if you don't change your thinking, you will never change your life. And so God has this problem, doesn't he? How to teach us the word in a way that will get us to let go of old paradigms that are counterproductive because doing what you've always done, thinking what you've always thought, will only give, give you what you've always had. So how does God change us by making us disciples, which are students? And if we abide in his word, what do we become? We become the tree planted by the river of water. Not the one out there in the desert that has to get rained on every two or three months or it's going to shrivel up and die. Not the one that needs a miracle, a blessing. But I'm talking about the one that lives in a constant state of blessedness. And in this series, I'm talking about how we sabotage our own lives, which is a very real phenomenon. Ask any pastor. Ask any psychologist, any counselor. Ask any mentor. We do things that end up destroying our own life. And this is why Paul says in Romans 7, 24, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I want you to notice as I close what he says, who will deliver me? Who? Not what. Who? Say it. Who? The answer is a person, not a thing. It's not a rehab class. Hello, somebody. It's not... Anthony Robbins seminar or Les Brown's lecture. You hear what I'm talking about? It's not just reading a book. It's not Oprah. It's not a, it's not a what. It's a who. And I thank God for all the good books and all the seminars. I'm not preaching against those. But at the end of the day, what I need you to understand is this is the ministry of Christ. Christ in you is the hope of glory. God will change your life. If he gets on the inside and you will but hunger after him. I close by saying there are eight things that sabotage our lives.
I mentioned these a couple, well, several Sundays ago. And next Sunday, I'm going to tell you how to undo these, how to get free from them. The eight things that I see as a pastor destroy people over and over and over and over again. Number one, shame. Number two, self-destructive thoughts. Number three, compulsions. I knew I shouldn't, but I couldn't help myself. Number four, fear. Andrew spoke on that one just a couple of Sundays ago. Number five, despair. Depression. Despondency. Number six, resentment, which is just a fancy word for unforgiveness. Number seven, pride, which is a common word for arrogance. And number eight, low self-esteem.